welcome to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. My name is Laura, and I'd just like to take a brief moment to share um, my sadness and dismay over the passing of Colin Kilty, who actually did help record that intro song that I have for this podcast. Um, our community lost someone really fantastic, and I hope that his family and his wife can can find peace. Um, so that all said, let's press on to the topic of this episode, which is the continued history of the mafia influence in Denver. And I say mafia fairly loosely because it didn't really even touch on the depths of influence and violence that East Coast mafia in the U.S. reached. Um, nor were the two groups really all that connected, save for a few meetings and business deals. Um, nor should anyone assume that the mafia refor- refers to one organized group because it was many different groups all sort of at odds with each other. Our story begins with my earlier episode about Joe Roma, also known as Little Caesar, and some of the beginnings of the mafia presence in Colorado, which was largely set off by prohibition. Uh, I have a couple of corrections before I get started, too. One is that a number of sources also show Joe Roma's wife as being named Nettie, not Nellie. So let's say her name was Nettie. Um, the, also the pronouncing of, I said Smaldon in the last episode, and apparently that's not right. Um, the Italian version is Smaldoni. And that's the very American way of saying Smaldoni, but that's how I'm going to just say it from here on out. So, as I said previously in the historical episode, Joe Roma's murder in the living room of his Denver home was the beginning of the end of an incre- of incredible violence in Denver. Um, his funeral procession went through the streets of Little Italy all the way to the cemetery and was described as a funeral that rivaled the splendor of the funerals of the gangland kings of Chicago. Roma had been running an illegal booze operation and had dealings with mob members all over Colorado, notably the Carlino brothers in Pueblo, who were killed just months before Roma was, and um, their deaths, um, some suspect, had something to do with Roma himself. But their list of suspects was probably longer than their list of people who weren't suspects, in a manner of saying. Sam Carlino himself even leveled his own home at one point with an explosion in 1931, using three gallons of turpentine and two gallons of automotive gas, all just to collect $11,000 in insurance money to finance bootlegging operations. Sam Carlino was shot in his own kitchen on May 8, 1931, and then old house-exploding Pete Carlino was found shot under a bridge later that same year in September, effectively sort of ending the Carlino brothers. The deaths of the Carlino brothers did indeed elevate Roma to the top of the Italian gang hierarchy, but like I said, that spot was short-lived because Roma was soon murdered himself, and two other brothers um, named Clyde and Eugene, who went by checkers, uh, Smaldone, were suspects in his murder that was never solved. But right after the murder of Roma, and before Prohibition ended in 1933, Denver police really ramped up their assault on mafia members using charges of vagrancy. 
and they described a vagrant as someone who has no legitimate occupation, no matter how much money he possesses. And this charge was handed out to Raphael Smaldone, the family patriarch, his sons Clyde, Eugene, and Anthony, and their brother-in-law, Albert Capra, as they hung out in a kind of local meeting house at 35th and Mariposa, which police described as a perpetual loafing place for bootleggers, racketeers, and gangsters. The men in the Smaldoni family spent 40 days in jail and emerged ready to take on their newfound roles as the leaders of the Denver area mob. So who are the Smaldoni family? Raphael Smaldoni was born in Potenza, Italy in 1882 and arrived in the U.S. in 1884 as a two-year-old with parents Gaetano and Katrina Smaldoni. The family went to Buffalo, New York briefly, and then made their way out to the new and wide open West that was not really being approached by Italians too much at that time. Italian immigration was slow to gain speed in the U.S. Um, In 1850, there were only 4,000 Italians in the country. In 1880, immigration picked up and the number rose to 44,000. And the first Italians who immigrated were largely from North Italy, who, for whatever reason is stated um, at that time, had a reputation for being a bit more moneyed and educated. Then um, that that number of Italians hit nearly 500,000 only two years later. By 1920, the U.S. had over 1.5 million Italians in the country. The earliest to come were largely young and unmarried men looking to make money and send it home or find a place to settle down and work before sending for their families. Some less literate Italians and other immigrants were taken advantage of by labor scouts who would basically wait out at Ellis Island and they would advertise jobs and then they would pay to send the men out west where they would find that the situation for work wasn't what they were told it was, and they toiled away in exploitative manual labor jobs for low pay. In Colorado specifically, the gold rush drew in some of these young men, and the Garabino brothers were the first recorded Italians to arrive in Denver in 1859. Italian men labored in dangerous trades and mining gigs all over Colorado, but also found a particular niche in something that German immigrants also found lucrative, the saloon and social club business. In the mid To late 1800s, Denver Italians clustered together in a South Platte River neighborhood known as the Bottoms. Clapboard shacks, shanties, and tents was what this neighborhood was largely comprised of. They grew their own vegetables, and they always were the enterprising sort. Um, They sold basically anything they could gather or make to sell. Children sold watercress from the South Platte River, and I had no idea water crest ever grew there. If it did, it probably doesn't now because that river is gross. But um, upon the children's return from selling this watercress, they would collect old cigar butts tossed on the ground that still had some burn left on them, and they would sell those to Italians in the bottoms. Crime was, of course, an issue in the bottoms, and general sentiment towards Italians in the rest of Denver was still quite prejudiced. Barroom brawls were common all over Denver uh, with Italians. In one instance, an Italian named Daniel Arada was publicly hung in 1893 after he shot and beat a 60-year-old Civil War veteran to death after the veteran couldn't find money for a five-cent glass of beer 
at Arata Saloon in the CD Hotel d'Italia on Wawada Street. Arata was taken to jail, but at night a mob swarmed the jail and drug him out, and they hanged him on a nearby cotton tree, shot him 20 times, dragged his body to 17th and Curtis, where, just for good measure, they hanged him again from a telegraph pole. The Italian neighborhoods appeared homogenous to outsiders, but were in fact full of rival families and people from rivaling parts of Italy who all hated each other. One evening, a gang slipped into the home of a scissor sharpener named Giuseppe Pecora uh, with the intent to rob him, only to find that he was living with three musicians, and the gang slit the throats of all four men in the house and mutilated their bodies before dumping them in the cellar of the home and making themselves comfortable for a time eating all of his food and drinking his booze. But it wasn't all crime and despair. Many Italians were making names for themselves in respectable careers in Denver, and the late 1800s saw the first Italian police officer, state representative, and administration members for then-Mayor Robert Speer. Many Italian immigrants wanted their children to become Americanized, but also maintain traditions, a line that Americans born to Italian descendants would have to tow for quite a long time, and possibly even to this day. And the Italians kept moving up and expanding. By the 20th century, they occupied um, the north area of Denver, around 35th Avenue in Navajo, and that area came to be known as Little Italy. They built Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church in 1904 and created many prominent social clubs, such as the Potenza Lodge. Italians also had a special love for Christopher Columbus, a love that hasn't aged well, but they saw him as an Italian celebrity and believed him to be the man who, quote, unquote, discovered America. And Coloradan Italians loved him so much that Colorado was the very first state to recognize Columbus Day as a holiday. So back to Gaetano and Katrina Smaldone. They arrived in Denver in 1889 with their sons, Raphael and Luigi. In 1901, Raphael Smaldone, who was only 19 years old, married Mami Figliolino at Mount Carmel Church and immediately got to work having 11 children, nine of whom survived to maturity. A daughter, Corinne, was born first, followed by Clyde and Eugene, Angelica, Anthony, Ralph, Genevieve, and Clarence, who went by Chauncey. And they all squeezed into a two-story house at 3427 Osage Street. They had no bathroom, and they had to use an outhouse. They took weekly communal baths with four kids at once. Raphael Smaldone worked odd jobs until he got a pay raise as a foreman at the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. And one of the first things he bought was a toilet for their house. Smart man. Two eldest, the two eldest boys of the family, Clyde and Eugene, also got work as children starting at age seven, doing odd jobs to bring money home to their family. They never, or maybe rarely, kept money for themselves. It was all put right back into their family because family was everything. They sold fruits and vegetables. They peddled newspapers. One day, Clyde and Eugene found a $5 bill on the ground, which was huge money to them back then, and uh, they gave it to their mother because they actually didn't even know what it was. They had never seen a $5 bill before. She asked them if they stole it, and they said no, and that was a big help to the family uh, that at that time. 
Family patriarch Raphael would eventually find a new business in bootlegging, which he did even before Prohibition. He specifically made wine, which is a cultural staple for Italians, and when Colorado outlawed booze in 1916, four years before the nation as a whole, Raphael was already set up for what would become the family's business for the coming decades. Clyde and Eugene became runners for this booze, and they started their own little operations on their side, stealing booze, mostly. Um, Either the pair or Clyde with a friend would ransack garages in North Denver looking for liquor. They would also resell bootleg liquor, and they sold bonded whiskey that they got from an Irishman, and bonded whiskey was the good stuff, unlike the blends going around, so they could sell a bottle to rich elites in Denver for up to $20 that they had only bought for a dollar or two. So I talked a little bit about Prohibition um, in my episode about Joe Roma, and most people know the gist, but I'll add a few more Denver-specific facts. At the time Prohibition started in Denver, um, Denver had 467 licensed saloons and 550 illicit grog shops. Colorado's initial prohibition was full of loopholes. Various churches could keep liquor for religious purposes, and at one point a congregation was cited by authorities after they went through 400 gallons of sacramental wine in a month. People could get a little license or kind of like allowance card that allowed them two pints of wine and 24 quarts of beer a month. In 1917, Denver issued around 60,000 of those licenses. Um, For whatever reason, beer and liquor could be imported from wet states until, of course, other states followed in prohibition. But before then, tens of thousands of dollars worth of booze was flowing over the state lines. On the last evening of liquor consumption in Denver, people wore black like they were going to a funeral and took to the streets to go drinking. One barroom owner even made a window display of liquor bottles dressed up in black lace like a funeral and put in a sign saying, I was full once, but I can rush the can no longer. All I can do is growl. Referencing getting growlers of beer to go, which was also briefly allowed following their prohibition. Each newspaper had an article of who they thought had the honor of being the first drunk arrested during Prohibition. The Post picked John Hansen, who was greeted to a round of applause when he was led into jail. Denver was promptly overrun with feral cats who were at one point bar pets who lived off of scraps and were released into Denver streets following bar closures. Eventually, Clyde Smaldone and one of his friends decided that they would get into the bootlegging business themselves. They did kind of a hybrid bootlegging and booze selling gig for a while, always bringing money home to the family and getting Eugene and their other brother, Anthony, involved as well. The brothers used their money to fix up the family home and provide for their younger siblings. By the 1920s, the business was booming. Even cops and politicians bought from them and looked the other way. And for the ones who didn't buy, they bribed. And only a few remained who couldn't really be swayed with bribes or booze. The brothers and a host of other moonshiners kept the state from going fully dry. In fact, as was the case nearly everywhere with Prohibition, it basically just made drinking worse. 
incorrect forms of alcohol like methanol were being shoddily made and poisoning people or making them blind or killing them. Uh, What was once relegated to seedy districts and tenderloins now was in family homes and streets and pushed underground where there was no taxation or regulation. Arrests increased, violence increased, murders increased. Everyone from children to local church leaders to grandparents to cops were hiding booze, producing booze, or lying about booze. Colorado-produced moonshine was known as Sugar Moon because it was largely made from local sugar beets and local Italians specifically focused on wine. At one point, the Smaldoni brothers looked into getting liquor from Canada down into the States and into Colorado and began working with a team led by Al Capone out of Chicago. The brothers would be gone for weeks at a time, driving liquor all over the U.S. from Canada for Al Capone. They attempted the same thing with Mexico once, but they were tipped off by a guard on the American side that they would be ambushed. So they sent down a dummy car that was searched and didn't contain any booze, and the real car carrying the booze made it through, and they decided that they would just let Mexico be after that. Five years into Prohibition... The once celebrated and supported decision was coming under fire. It wasn't helping anything it was supposed to help. It was actually just making it worse. The Smaldoni brothers reveled in this business, uh, yet they and their cohorts were arrested many times over the years. They were arrested for hijacking a whiskey truck in 1927. Eugene was arrested when police raided his home in West 37th Street and found 35 caliber rifles two sawed-off shotguns, and an automatic rifle, and he told them, maybe I like to go hunting. The 1920s to mid-30s in Denver were a bloodbath. No legal booze, and the mining and agricultural industries of Colorado were really winding down. More than 36 violent deaths and unsolved disappearances were linked directly with the illicit liquor trade and mob. And during the 20s, the Ku Klux Klan was also leading the way in Denver, having weaseled their way into the highest levels of government and into nearly every business and industry. For Clyde Smaldone, he wasn't concerned with the goings-on of the Klan other than to do business with them. The Klan didn't step on the bootlegging of the mob, and they didn't step on the whatever activities were going on with the Klan. In fact, the mob and Italians were kind of a weird go-between for some rival groups. They weren't a racially motivated or hateful bunch, unless the people were Italians from the wrong part of Italy. They just wanted to make business deals. Violence started up initially in 1919 with the fatal shooting of an Italian man named Jerry Corbetta. He was a veteran back from World War I, and he just so happened to be sitting in a soft drink parlor that was also running bootleg booze, and he was shot by police officer George Klein, and Klein was later gunned down in the yard of his home by heavy buckshot that tore through him and severed his spinal cord. The point was really driven home that the police shouldn't get involved in stopping bootlegging with the murder of police patrolman Richie Rose, who was gunned down by a drive-by shooting while walking home for a cup of coffee. He was shot 21 times, and in response to his death, Police Chief Rugg Williams ordered the closure of all pool halls, soft drink parlors, and cigar shops that he thought might have something to do with bootlegging. And there was violence in other parts of the state as well. In 1925, in Pueblo, brothers Tony and Pete Dana 
stood outside the Monte Carlo pool hall and were gunned down by sawed-off shotguns in a drive-by. This one was particularly gruesome because each brother was hit by 30 to 40 pieces of buckshot and it essentially shredded their bodies and they were left basically as pulp on the ground for all of the people in the area to see. Papers were angry and they ran smear campaigns against Denver police chief Robert F. Reed, who was known as Diamond Dick because of his love of wearing flashy rings, saying that he was paralyzed with fear and basically just letting gangsters run amok. In 1931, gangsters from all over the state gathered in La Palmarte restaurant in suburban Denver when police ambushed this meeting and arrested two dozen men. And following this instant, 12 instance, 12 more shootings and disappearances occurred over the next year. And the small Donate brothers survived it all and kept their bootlegging business afloat. But the small Donates would get theirs. In 1933, federal authorities caught their parents, Raphael and Mammy, peddling booze from their home, apparently overlooking Raphael's alternative barroom business. The brothers struck a deal with police in order to have their parents released, and they pled guilty to several charges involved in multiple crimes, but one in particular was a gunfight in January of that year in which hijackers driving a sedan and two trucks swooped in on a large 800-gallon bootlegging operation. The still's owners opened fire, and it was a gun brawl in which two were killed. All Joe Roma's men at the time, and among them were Clyde and Eugene Smaldone. Clyde and Eugene got 18 months in prison, and by the time they were released, prohibition was over. Increasing violence and the economic downturn of the Great Depression meant that this was no longer an endless battle worth fighting for the United States. The dryish spell in Colorado didn't end until April 7, 1933, and the first cases of 3.2 beer, also known as 3.2 beer, rolled out of Coors Brewery and Denver erupted into kind of a giant party. But everything still had some weird limitations that people got around. For years, the state required that booze be served with a meal, so the rubber sandwich was invented. It was a real sandwich made from real food that was made at the bar and set in front of a person who ordered at a bar, but that person wouldn't eat it. It would be passed on and on to the next people all day, sometimes for a few days at a time, until it was obviously spoiled and hard as a rock, and this was known as the rubber sandwich. Other places would sell a plate of, set a plate of crumbs in front of a customer so that if an inspector came in, they could say that they already ate their required meal. And at some level, even small, of all this ridiculousness has persisted until the current day. 3-2 beer didn't disappear in Colorado until January of 2019, after being sold to unwitting transplants or unaware locals in grocery stores for decades. And, of course, limits on when and where to sell liquor still exist. So, that's it for prohibition stuff. Let's talk about Clyde Smaldone, the eldest uh, son of the Smaldone family. He was given the name Flip Flop by newspapers to tick him off, and it was never an actual nickname of his. And he was known as Gaetan, which is the diminutive form of Clyde in Italian. And yes, I just tried to record that word many times. He was born here in Denver on August 27th, 1906 in a row house at 35th and Mariposa 
and he was the first son of Raphael and Mammy Smaldone. His first crime on the books occurred when he was 13, and he was caught stealing pants. He was sent to a boys' state industrial school for 15 months for that, which seems kind of harsh to me. But that kind of just amplified his crime habit. By the time he turned 24, he had been arrested 14 times for various crimes such as bootlegging, reckless driving, burglary, impersonation of a police officer, receiving stolen goods, hijacking, and brawling. He spent his teenage years um, at a speakeasy known as the Moonlight Ranch where he witnessed the wife of the judge who sentenced him many times over over the years dancing on the stage. That same judge later shut down the speakeasy, calling it a stench in the nostrils of decent and respectable citizens. And I personally believe, for Clyde, this kind of put the nail in the coffin of any belief that following the law and being a decent and respectable person were synonymous. Clyde married Mildred Wackenruder, an Irish-German fashion model, on August 28, 1928, and they had two sons, Eugene and Charles, who later went by Chuck. Mildred became the disciplinarian and almost sole parent of the sons because Clyde was often busy running his bootlegging and gambling businesses, and he would end up spending nearly 17 years in total of their entire marriage behind bars. And during that time, Clyde reigned supreme in the Denver bootlegging and gambling market for the next 40 years. Uh, He even had a close and special relationship with the police, as did many mobsters, oddly enough. And here's a really weird part of all this. When Charles Betcher II was kidnapped in 1933, the police actually went to Clyde Smaldone for help. And they wanted him to be the in-between guy for the money exchange in return for them looking the other way on some charges. But Clyde refused to do it on the off chance that he might know the guys who had kidnapped Charles and he didn't want to have to be taken before court and testify against them. They also asked Joe Roma to do it, but he refused as well. In 1934, Clyde and his brother Eugene got into gambling a bit further, and they fell in with a notorious Denver club owner named Elijah Stevens, who was known as Smiling Charlie because he basically never smiled. He was a really, really dour man. Smiling Charlie ran a club called Blakeland, and I will have an ad for this on the Instagram at Colored Red Podcast. And at Blakeland, they had floor shows and chicken dinners, and the biggest draw, which wasn't printed on any of their ads or displayed, was the illegal gambling going on. The show there was big news, and it was probably the biggest in the state. Uh, Even Judy Garland and a few other celebrities and famous acts came through there, but as As is always the case with these mafia stories, um, life has a way of turning on a dime and success becomes failure really quickly. Famous gambler Leo Barnes um, tried to start up a partnership with Smiling Charlie along with the Smaldone brothers who ran the gambling slide of Blakeland. But Smiling Charlie and Barnes soon had a falling out over Barnes attempting to take control of the club. And in December of 1936, Barnes got into a car with his wife, Pernie, when an explosion erupted from underneath the driver's seat and drove Barnes through the metal of the roof of the car. Somehow, miraculously, and with 
relatively few scratches. Barnes survived this, but his butt of all things, and I mean his rear end, his B-U-T-T, was torn off and he broke his pelvis. Um, his wife also miraculously survived um, due to like some, some obstruction being in the way that they didn't really talk about, and she didn't have many injuries at all. Smiling Charlie, Clyde, and Eugene Smaldone all got seven to ten years in Canyon City for conspiracy to commit murder because they could never really prove who had actually set this bomb in the car. Clyde Smaldone got a double whammy sentence uh, with an additional four years tacked on because the judge claimed that he had stolen uh, $450 from a cigarette, popcorn, and candy snack truck. Even though Clyde was adamant till his dying day that he wasn't the type that dealt in petty amounts of money like that, and he didn't steal from candy trucks, for sure. And let me just say here that a cigarette, popcorn, and candy truck sounds like just what the doctor ordered right now. Anyway, Clyde spent his time in jail learning and reading. He never graduated high school or went to college. But he did complete his high school equivalency while in jail, and people described him as exceptionally smart. He absorbed all kinds of subjects like religion and even metaphysics and philosophy, and he was also artistic and got into painting, but was never allowed to sign his paintings with his own name. And he was paroled from Canyon City in 1942. And he did try to go join the army and do his part in World War II, which was in full swing, but the military wouldn't take him. So uh, Clyde ended up going to work for his mother, Mammy, in the small Tejon Bar and Cafe, which was two doors down from the still operating restaurant that they later opened called Gaetano's. The cafe was struggling and Clyde really turned it around, largely due to help from his underground operations. People also said that he was a fantastic storyteller. Uh, He told all about driving liquor for Al Capone in his teenage years and about all of the abandoned mines that he discovered when there were still illegal, illegal liquor stills in the foothills of Colorado. He was also a fierce animal lover and so loved his dog Fritz that when Fritz ended up going blind with old age, He told people this story that he was walking Fritz at the park and the heavens opened up and Fritz Fritz looked up into the light of the angels and he was blinded. I mean, these are the kind of sort of tall tales and fun stories that the guy told all the time. Um, He was heavily involved in the Catholic Church uh, for activities and donations, going as far as to treat a different orphan to Christmas every year at the Smaldone family house. And he sent at least five disadvantaged boys to college on his own dime. He raised money to build all kinds of things from schools to churches to community centers, But for all the charity, there was kind of a little bit of a calculating aspect behind it that people called out. A close friend of Gene Smaldone recalls that Clyde didn't do a lot of things just purely for good and kindness. He did it all kind of as part of a deal. Everything was a business deal. Everything was a give, and he would later ask for something else in return for what he would give. Um... He would give gifts and buy things for people so that down the road, he would be able to come knocking for their help or to use the things that he bought for them. So that was kind of Clyde's background. Eugene, who was the next brother born, 
was also known as Checker's Small Donate, and he was Clyde's counterpart, but also a bit of Clyde's opposite. Not really as uh, inclined to academics or charitable or talkative, he was kind of known as the tough one who had a bit of a temper. He started early in crime as well. He was a prolific car thief, and he was arrested for, for the first time at 15 years old for stealing parts from cars. He made it into the news in 1931 for butting into a car chase that was going on in downtown Denver. And he maneuvered his car to pin in the car of investigators who were chasing a rum runner. Eugene was shot at by these investigators with one bullet missing his head by inches, and the rum runner got away. He was only fined $60 for that whole incident, and that is roughly $1,000 in today's money. He went to Canyon City with his brother for the car bomb plot that they were uh, said to be conspiring in. And oddly enough, unlike Clyde, who kept to himself but hated the guards and the whole prison experience, um, Eugene was a model prisoner as well as kind of a suck-up to the guards and the warden. And the warden at that time was Roy Best, a very influential warden who I've discussed many times and can be heard about on my episode in the history of the Canyon City Pen. Eugene had a very close and trusting relationship with Warden Best, and it culminated in a not very well publicized and possibly uh, differently remembered or exaggerated incident in the pen ground where an inmate got hold of a gun and went directly to the home of Warden Best, which was right there on the grounds of the penitentiary. Inside the home were the warden's young uh, children, niece and nephew. Some stories say that they were his son and daughter, um, and they were taken hostage by this inmate. Eugene Smaldone was working in a car garage right by the house, and he immediately went over and opened the kitchen door to find a gun in his face. And completely unmoved, he just said, take that thing out of my face. I'm not interfering with your business. You keep out of mine. And he walked past the inmate with a gun and grabbed the kids and took them upstairs to a bedroom where he locked himself in with them and spent the rest of the holdout playing checkers with them until the inmate was subdued. And he basically just took the kids up there to protect them, um, fearing what might happen. Some say that this is the origin of his nickname, though the name Checkers appears in papers before this incident. Clyde married Francis Cephalu on April 12th, 1931, and they had only one child also named Eugene, who was called Young Eugene. So Clyde had a son named Eugene, and Eugene had a son named Eugene. So anyway, Young Eugene... Francis was um, as flashy and bold as Mildred, Clyde's wife. Francis was known for her flashy clothing and her four-carat emerald-cut diamond ring, a very long cigarette holder that she used to smoke with, despite the fact that she only had one lung. And she also carried a small silver pistol in her purse, and she claimed that it was a cigarette lighter. The brothers were known around town not really as thugs, but as dudes who liked to dress nice and rub elbows with Denver's elite often. People claimed that they acted kind of like everyone's uncles. Um, The only memorable transgressions around the elites of the town came from Eugene when he got too drunk. He would insist on singing opera for them. 
In other places, though, where he didn't care about keeping their reputations up, he had a temper. In one instance, he was cut off at a bar and proceeded to smash all of the glasses of the bar. And then he threw a wad of cash at the bartender and said that that should cover it all and to not ever tell him that he can't drink in there. Checkers also had a knack for turning illicit business meetings into brawls. One such incident was a shootout at Darlene's Ice Cream Parlor on Navajo Street, where 59-year-old Eugene went to discuss a debt owed to the small dones by one of their bookmakers named Joe Nuasi. Nuoki? And um, this Joe was a known hothead. So during the exchange, a man went into his top coat, which Joe Nuoki assumed was him going for a gun. And he pulled out mace and sprayed Eugene and the other men before grabbing for his own gun, shooting it and missing Eugene. And then he accidentally dropped the gun and began fumbling for it again. And Eugene picked up this gun and shot him in the armpit and arm before the man attempted to shoot at them again with a different gun, again missing. Later in the trial, Eugene and the other men um, were acquitted for all of this in self-defense because the man did shoot first and was trying to continue to shoot. The ice cream parlor um, that this was done in blew up, literally exploded four months later, which you'll find is a very common theme with the Smaldones and the Mafia. Um, Police say that it was the Italian owner's doing because he wanted the insurance money, but the owner claimed that it was Mexican gangs who were moving into the neighborhood. But the entire um, family moved on to other business ventures. The family eventually became solidly involved in the family restaurant Gaetano's, which, like I said, still exists, and it's full of pictures of the Smaldone family, but it's no longer owned by any member of the Smaldone family, to my knowledge, even though they did remain a part of this restaurant even after they had sold it. Um, They still went there and hung out there and had a lot of business going on there. So as time went on, Eugene and Clyde really did uh, butt heads, usually over young Eugene, um, old Eugene's son again, who got into dealing drugs, a part of the crime scene that the Smaldone family absolutely uh, loathed, and they hated it and they didn't want anything to do with it. Young Eugene um, was the only child of old Eugene, and he was born with a deformed left hand earning him the lovely nickname of Flipper, which I'm sure didn't influence his decline into drugs whatsoever. He had drug problems and was terrible with money and was eventually shunned by the family and involved in kind of the downfall of the family. Uh, And he was shunned by old Eugene eventually, an act that would kind of start old Eugene's downfall into a bit of despair. One of the many achievements of the Smaldone family, particularly that of Clyde, was the revival of Central City, also known as Black Hawk. My Colorado listeners undoubtedly know what Black Hawk is. It's this uh, gambling casino town situated in the mountains in what was once a successful mining town that wound down over the years. Um, The town tried to revive itself with opera and plays, and the Smaldones eventually set up gambling houses, and gambling happened there just completely out in the open in front of law enforcement, and no one really cared. Um, The Smaldones in Central City formed a kind of a symbiotic relationship. 
The city at that time was in complete shambles. There was dirt roads, sidewalks were broken boards and planks left over from gold rush days. There was no sanitation system, and there was barely any money to heat the buildings and houses. Clyde Smaldone ended up brokering a deal with Denver, basically saying that they would create a water line and system funded by the Smaldone family, in addition to several other things, including a lunch program for school children in the town and the restoration of a number of homes. And in exchange, they would be allowed gambling concessions without interference from the law. And uh, as such, the Monte Carlo Casino was born, and the right to gamble in this sort of deal was uh, born despite the fact that gambling was still technically illegal. But by 1949, there was a new justice of the peace who didn't like this deal, and the Smaldones were pushed out of Central City leaving it better than when they came. And uh, they predicted that the state would eventually legalize gambling and tax it, seeing what they could reap from it, and that very thing did indeed happen. In 1953, a drive was begun against gambling in Colorado by government attorneys Charles Vigil and Max Melville, targeting specifically the Smaldone family and Clyde and Eugene in particular. Their involvement in Central City gambling rings was called into question, and Clyde, Eugene, and 29 others were brought to court over an apparently fixed dice game at a pool hall on Federal Boulevard. Eventually, it couldn't be proven that they had fixed the game themselves, and they were just fined $150 each for gambling. Soon after that, Eugene went on trial for failure to pay income taxes for the year 1946, and the presiding judge for this trial was named Willis Ritter, who was a really oddball judge in Denver, and he had a lot of strange judicial decisions over the years, including citing 30 postal workers because their mail sorting machinery located in the post office of the court building was too noisy. And Eugene failed to show up for this tax evasion court date, But it would turn out to be for an actually good reason. He had appendicitis and was rushed into surgery that morning. But Judge Ritter tried to throw the book at him and also refused to step down due to his obvious hatred of the defendant, Eugene Smaldone. The tax evasion court date was postponed, but the Smaldone brothers and several others were charged with attempting to bribe jurors for that trial. And they all pled guilty to a small charge of conspiracy. And the judge pretty much took them to cleaners with this small charge and sentenced both brothers, Clyde and Eugene, to 60 years, which were basically at that time life sentences, thus kind of putting a stake in the Smaldone family crime era. Ritter was eventually replaced as a judge, and the brothers were given a second trial because it was obviously pretty biased in the first one. Their new judge was W. Lee Naus, who agreed to give the brothers each three sentences of four years to be served concurrently if they pled guilty, so they did. And the judge then gave them those sentences, but they had to serve them consecutively. So instead of four years, they got 12, and they were to spend them in prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. The brothers maintained uh, forever that they were double-crossed by this judge, 
Clyde was also pretty pissed off because he thinks that, well, and he was right. Eugene basically just dragged him into this entire mess and it was Eugene's trial and it was Eugene's tax evasion crime. And they were accused of conspiracy for it. And it led to the two brothers pretty much drifting apart because all Eugene really ever had to do was just pay the taxes that he owed for which he had the money and none of this would have ever happened. The brothers only ended up serving about seven-ish years for this crime, and they returned home in 1962. During that time, their mother died, John Glenn orbited the earth, and Clyde earned several culinary certificates in jail. During this time, Chauncey Smaldone, the youngest Smaldone sibling, um, basically, with his nephew, Polly Villano, took over Gaetano's restaurants, the loans, and the gambling. In addition, young Eugene, the drug-dealing Smaldone, got involved while his father and uncle were out of the picture. Young Eugene brought Chauncey into the loan-sharking business, and young Eugene also began dealing narcotics and, for a time, enjoyed the riches that this produced, taking high-roller trips to Las Vegas and striking up a tumultuous relationship with a blonde woman named Judy Good. Judy was a very beautiful... um, a blonde bombshell, basically, and successful owner of racing dogs, and was also a professed member of Anton LaVey's Witch Coven. In 1972, young Eugene got 10 years in prison for dealing cocaine, and Judy Good appeared to move on, marrying a man named Lawrence Hamilton in a Cheeseman Park wedding where they all wore black, she carried black roses, and she was given away by a man only known as Warlock Chuck. After young Eugene got out of prison, she left Lawrence and married young Eugene, and they lived together until 1998 when Judy died. Her body was ravaged by years of drug abuse. And young Eugene wasn't the only Smaldoni who had drama with women. Chauncey also had a a bit of a time. He married a woman named Pauline, and they were married for 35 years before a woman named Carol Jean Reeb entered the picture. She was a kleptomaniac with numerous arrests for petty theft and shoplifting. She was remembered as basically stealing stuff from everyone's houses constantly, houses that she was invited into. Everyone had to kind of have one eye on her at all times. She was the person that you pulled her bag from her and opened it and checked it before she left your house. Um, Despite this, she ended up becoming Chauncey's second wife, and um, they called her Jeannie Smaldone. And she became the bane of the Smaldone family, particularly the other women. Shirley Smaldone, wife of the soft-spoken brother Anthony, began running Gaetano's restaurant with the kleptomaniac Jeannie. And Jeannie apparently asked Shirley to take out a $65,000 loan to help the business. And for whatever reason, um, she did. And Jeannie did pay on it for a while before kind of just stopping and disappearing. And no one could ever figure out what she actually did with that $65,000. Shirley eventually was about to go into foreclosure on the restaurant. And Jean Smaldone stepped in to save it until it was eventually sold to a restaurant company. Pauline Smaldone, uh, Chauncey's wife, had her own issues as a fairly frequent target of people wanting to enact revenge on the Smaldone family. She was shot at from a car in 1973, and family members suspected the shooter was Jeannie. 
uh, pissed off about being caught stealing the loan money. Less than a year later, her house exploded. Again, here's this theme. After a bomb was planted by unknown people um, while she was uh, watching TV with a friend in a living room. And they all miraculously survived. And Pauline just sold the property and called it a wash. Um, In 1981, the FBI went on kind of a mob-crushing spree, and Gaetanos um, was one of those targets, and they planted a bug in the restaurant basement and caught us a conversation about illegal firearms that was taking place. The police raided several small donate-related properties and seized a silencer and multiple guns and stacks of documents and $50,000 cash that was hidden in Gaetano's restaurant. In 1982, Chauncey and old Eugene, a.k.a. Checker Smaldone, who was then 72, were each sentenced to 10 years in prison for loan sharking, income tax evasion, and firearms violations. Eugene Smaldone died on March 17, 1992, of a heart attack while awaiting colon cancer surgery in the hospital. He was 81. Clyde Smaldone drifted away from the family crime activity in 1962, and he became a bit of a drunk often seen sitting at the far end of the bar in Gaetanos. Until um, several years before his death, he actually quit drinking and became a born-again Christian. And he died on January 7th, 1998, at the age of 91. The youngest Smaldone brother, Chauncey, developed dementia and was the last sibling to die on October 16th, 2006. Chuck and Jean Smaldone, sons of Clyde and Mildred Smaldone, would go on to share the family stories and legacy in the book that most of this information comes from, written by Dick Creck. And um, that's pretty much the gist of the Smaldone family. They rubbed elbows with a lot of famous people over the years. They sold liquor to a lot of very famous people over the years. And they came to actually do quite a lot of good for the community. They weren't just cold-blooded murderers who just randomly created violence in the streets. They, you know, they took care of their business, and that's kind of just what they did. And they took care of a lot of business for good for the entire community, as I was surprised to find out about. So um, that's that. I'll have a lot of pictures up on the Instagram at Colored Red Podcast. And if you like the podcast... You can go on Patreon at patreon.com slash coloredredpodcast, and uh, if you donate just $1 per month, you'll get a sticker and card from me in the mail as a thanks. So until next time, everybody. Mm-hmm.